Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast and audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved, and long-forgotten murders, all set within one square mile of the West End. Today's episode is about Brian Alexander Robinson, a 19-year-old part-time DJ who murdered a man he had never met before for no financial gain nor personal malice. And yet... Although he was found guilty, Brian should never have been tried for murder. Murder Mile contains grisly details, which may upset the Fluffy Bunny Brigade, as well as realistic sounds, so that no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. Episode 34, Brian Alexander Robinson and the Darbley Street Death. Today, I'm standing on Darbley Street, smack bang in Soho Centre. Two streets west of the murder scene of Canadian masturbator Richard Rhodes Henley, one street north of the Blackout Ripper's second victim, Evelyn Oatley, and one street northeast of sweet-natured sex worker, Ginger Ray. Speckled with a messy mix of 80s eyesores, 60s shit pits, and 18th century slum houses, although Darbley Street is curiously quiet, bafflingly broken, and painfully pug-ugly, owing to a teeny tiny little hole in the road which even after one and a half years Westminster Council still hasn't fixed after a sizable injection of cash this stumpy little side street is finally being given a second lease of life as yes you've guessed it yet another haven for half-witted hipsters ugh And although, like a hipster's head, it's always half empty, except for vague hints of hummus and falafel, the unsubtle sounds of bongos and didgeridoos, 
and the sight of top-hatted twats supping micro-brewed beers made from liberated lentils, terrapin tears, and ethically sourced breast milk. If your idea of heaven is having a hat so tiny it looks like a boil on your bonds, jeans so tight that the world knows your religion, or a mush so hideously hairy it resembles an unkempt sailor's anus, Yes, Marco, I mean you. Give it a year, and Darblay Street may become your very own personal paradise. And yet, today, on the south side of Darblay Street, by the dark and brooding archway of Wardour Mews, where a long line of overexcited and easily duped tourists queue up for two to three hours, simply so they can say that they've sat in a very specific, if underwhelming, cafe. It was right here that Brian Robinson was forced to make a decision which would change two lives forever. On the 22nd of June, 1948, a British troop carrier docked in the Essex port of Tilbury, having first made a detour to Kingston, Jamaica. On board were 802 servicemen from the Commonwealth Colony of the West Indies, who, as loyal subjects to His Majesty the King, had bravely fought in the Second World War. And now, with Britain in an economic depression, and suffering a severe labour shortage, these brave men were once again coming to our aid. But not as warriors, as workers. The ship would be known as the Windrush, and for many, it marked the birth of modern multiculturalism in Britain. Having left behind their families, their homes and their lives. Upon arrival at Tilbury Dock, with many men clutching a single suitcase, wearing their one good suit, a pork pie hat, and a confused look as they wondered who stole the sun, hid all the fruit, covered everything in concrete and whittled in the water. Some men stayed for a few years, but most remained, later followed, by their families. And as immigration continued through the 1950s, by the mid-1960s, with the West Indian workers rarely, if ever, being thanked and habitually being branded as the bogeyman by the uneducated whites and even by Britain's other immigrants who'd quickly forgotten their own hardship and had adopted a we-were-here-first attitude to the new invaders... Britain, in the 1960s, was a powder keg of racial tension. Sparked by right-wing fascists, such as Oswald Mosley's union movement, who fought to keep Britain white, inflamed by British Prime Minister Sir David Lloyd George, who referred to Jamaica as the slum of the empire, and fanned by a government who saw the West Indian emigres no longer as help, 
but as a hindrance, and not as a people, but as a problem. Almost a decade before the 1976 Race Relations Act, which made it illegal to refuse homes, jobs or services to anyone based on their ethnic heritage. It must have seemed like lunacy for any West Indian to want to come to Britain. But on the 16th of August, 1961, a 16-year-old boy did just that. And his name was Brian Robinson. Brian Alexander Robinson was born on the 11th of November 1944 in the Jamaican capital of Kingston. With stout little legs, podgy round cheeks and a pot belly, Brian was the first-born son of two doting parents, Mary and Alexander. He was healthy, happy, loved and he would also be their last. When Brian was just one year old, his father died of cancer, leaving his distraught mother in the grip of depression. Being desperate for her attention, Brian became hyperactive and hot-tempered. But with him being the spitting image of her dear departed husband, his love went unreturned. Age seven, being eager to be seen rather than smacked. Whilst playing in the garden, Brian fell from a tree. And yet, as much as he screamed, cried and clutched his arm, with his mother having remarried and busy cuddling her new baby boy, neither Brian nor his injured arm received the attention they so badly needed. With his left humerus fractured, chronic inflammation having set in, and with the bone going untreated, as Brian grew, his left arm didn't, and the pain would plague him for the rest of his life. Age nine, Brian's mother uprooted with her new family to Brooklyn, New York leaving her first-born son behind in Kingston, the responsibility of relatives. Although studious, if a little easily upset, Brian studied hard at the St. Allison School and later at Grove College. But being of below-average intelligence and gaining no qualifications, aged just 16, Brian left the sunshine behind to seek a better life in Britain. On the 16th of August 1961, a five-foot, five-inch man with square shoulders, an ambling gait and a little pot belly strutted down the gangplank at Southampton Dock. His broad, plump face beaming as unlike the land he'd left behind, there was no sun, trees or sky. Just a noisy cacophony of ships, trains, cars and cranes. As the air hung thick with smog, 
In his right hand, Brian held a small battered suitcase, and in his left hand, a hat. The arm of his brown suit having been restitched a few inches shorter. Like most West Indians, raised on a diet of fruits, meats, vegetables, and spice, the British cuisine was, at best, disappointing, and at worst, disgusting. A bland, tepid, overboiled mush, made from animal entrails, topped with an unpalatable pastry, and to combat its blandness, it would be slathered in salt, coated in ketchup, or drowned in gravy. But for Brian, this was a symbol of his new life. Sadly, thirteen years after the first arrivals on the Windrush, the tide had turned, and with the West Indian emigres, who'd been invited to help rebuild Britain, now regarded by a thankless state as a burden, even highly skilled workers struggled to find jobs. With doctors working as dishwashers, barristers as brickies, and office clerks as cleaners, and being forced to live in slum housing, their rights ignored, and faced with a barrage of threats, hostility, and violence, life for British West Indians was tough. Having moved into a first-floor flat at Number Nine Elm Park in the West Indian enclave of Brixton, South London, although Brian briefly worked as a warehouseman, and his work record was regarded as satisfactory, being easily riled, highly strung, and hot-tempered, each job rarely lasted more than a few months, and always feeling like a stranger. In a strange land, what Brian craved most for was family. Being hungry, desperate, and broke, on the twenty-eighth of December, nineteen sixty-two, Brian was fined twenty shillings for the theft of one loaf, four rolls, and three pints of milk. On the seventeenth of January, nineteen sixty-three. He was sentenced to three months in prison for handling forged money, and on the 18th of January 1964, he served five months for obtaining a stolen checkbook. And although he was hardly a career criminal, being a black man with a prison record in 1960s Britain, Brian struggled to find employment. And after an endless slog of mind-numbing jobs, as a shop assistant, a radio repairman, and a laundry worker, in June 1964, Brian started work as a part-time DJ at the Limbo Club. Six weeks later, he would be charged with murder. Today. Down the dark and brooding archway of Wardour Mews, just off Darbley Street, hidden in the basement of Number Eleven B, is D M Buttons, a bespoke embroiderer's, which monograms and personalises buttons for most of the exclusive tailors on Savile Row. 
But back in 1964, this was the Limbo Club. With the eastern side of Wardour Mews having been bombed during the Blitz of World War II, this thin, dark, Edwardian dead end was once a no-go zone for any sensible citizen. Being packed as it was, with derelict buildings, burnt-out cars and broken glass. But amongst the debris, a series of illegal gambling dens, brothels, coffee houses and nightclubs sprung up. Hidden in the damp, dark squalor of the rat-infested basement at 11B Wardour Mews, the Limbo Club was an illegal nightclub, notorious for its raids and run-ins with the police, frequent fights, racial tension, and was predominantly frequented by black men keen to dance with white women, and vice versa. Being barely 60 feet wide and 40 feet deep, with a low-slung ceiling, the Limbo Club was lined with threadbare benches along the bare peeling walls. With a brick staircase at one end, a badly painted mural of a Tuscan vineyard at the other, as well as a fag machine, a few lights and a bar in the middle, which served bottled beers and spirits. It was grubby, grimy and grim. But for Brian, it was home. Perched in the corner cubbyhole, right next to the brick stairs, with a hi-fi system, a vinyl turntable, a wooden chair and two stereo speakers. Each evening, as the resident DJ, Brian spun a soulful mix of rocksteady, reggae and ska records, including Bob Marley and the Wailers, Toots and the Maytels, Prince Buster, Desmond Decker and the Aces, Lord Tanamo and the Scatterlites. And with many of the West Indian regulars, drinking rum, smoking weed, and chatting in a thick patois. Although the Limbo Club was in a dingy basement in a bombed-out London slum, for Brian, it was a little piece of heaven. Ran by his best friend, Oliver, whose real name was Leon Winchester Williams, Oliver was a 26-year-old thin-faced raster with high cheekbones, tight dreads, a goatee beard, and a thick Jamaican accent who being a few years older and a few inches taller, Brian regarded as the brother he never had. And with the Limbo Club, being where Brian had met his 18-year-old girlfriend, Jacqueline Edwards, known as Jackie, a white girl from a Catholic family who he planned to marry the following year. This wasn't just a nightclub. This was his home, and his family and he would do anything to protect them on the evening of Thursday the 28th of August 1964 one night before the murder Brian who was liked by everyone and had no known enemies was DJing in the corner cubbyhole sat near him on one of the threadbare benches was a large, white, ape-like bruiser from Deptford, 
known as Big Jim. All knuckles, muscles and menace. His tree trunk-like legs spread wide like he owned the place. And a rough scowl on his gormless face as he necked back one too many beers. Having stood up and stooped to pick up a fallen vinyl record, Big Jim popped his paint-splattered boot on Brian's chair. Being polite, Brian asked, Excuse me, sorry, can I have my chair? As this thin wooden chair wasn't just somewhere for Brian to park his bum, but with his fractured arm, often causing him pain in the cold as well as the heat, Brian needed a place to rest it. But Big Jim grunted, no. Maybe Big Jim was genuinely tired. Maybe, like Brian, he was physically disabled. Or maybe, as a racist, Big Jim simply disliked a black man forcing black music into his white ears. But having politely asked twice, Brian shoved Big Jim's foot and took the seat back. Without provocation, Big Jim pulled a flick knife and drunkenly slashed at Brian's torso, but missed and sliced a small hole in his jacket. Enraged, Big Jim yanked the seat back, tossing the five-foot-five black youth onto the floor. And as the white brute stood there, nostrils flared and knuckles gripped, towering over the small, chubby and physically disabled teen, with a shimmering blade of his flick knife bared, Big Jim struck again. Suddenly, all Big Jim saw was bricks, as his snarling face was pinned to the wall by Eddie Kaser, the club's burly bouncer, who disarmed him in an arm lock. And as Big Jim yelled and frothed like a rabid dog, fearing a bloody aftermath, as Eddie held back the drunken lout, Oliver told Brian to run. They'd had trouble in the limbo club before, not just because it was a club for black men, run by black men, and frequented by black men who danced with white women, and vice versa, but because the teddy boys were always looking for a fight. And as senseless as it was, that's how it started. Friday the 29th of August 1964 was hot and sticky, as the summer sun burned through the cloudless sky. For Brian, the heat and humidity was a welcome reminder of his Jamaican roots, as he sat shirtless on the sofa with Jackie, kissing and cuddling with the woman he loved. And as much as their lips lingered, little did they know that this would be the last kiss they would ever share. At roughly 9pm, as the sun slowly set over the London skyline, his best buddy, Oliver, accompanied by his new girlfriend, Evelyn, 
a feisty Irish redhead who he'd met at the club just a few weeks before, called at Brian's first floor flat at number nine Elm Park in Brixton. This was part of their usual routine. As they fixed some cold drinks, Oliver cautioned his mate that word on the street was that Big Jim would be back. Being no dummy, Brian knew this. And as much as he knew that a short tubby cripple didn't stand a chance against a six-foot oaf with a flick knife, he knew he needed to even the odds. From inside his jacket, Brian pulled a knife. Not a small knife, like the pathetic fish slice that Big Jim had drunkenly waved about, like a furious prude wafting away an unpleasant fart. But a real knife, with a thick steel blade, two inches wide by nine inches long. Oliver's wide eyes said it all. It truly was a terrifying piece. But that was the point. Brian wasn't an idiot. He knew he was too crippled to fight, too small to run, and he had no experience of knives whatsoever. So when Big Jim saw the big knife, it would be less of a lethal killing machine and more of a terrifying threat. Again, Oliver warned Brian not to carry the knife. But his mind was made up. What if Big Jim attacked him? What if Big Jim attacked Oliver, Evelyn or Jackie? These weren't just his friends. This was his family. And as a young boy with no real next of kin, these were the people he loved. At 10pm, Oliver, Jackie, Evelyn and Brian, who was dressed in a blue corduroy jacket, a crisp white shirt and blue jeans, caught the number 50 bus from Brixton to Charing Cross Road and headed into Soho. Although the sweltering sun had turned the limbo club into a stinking skunk pit, as with having no windows, one door, and being based in a damp basement, the fetid stench of sweat, smoke, and spilt spirits made the smell unbearable as the overheated patrons swigged back warm beers. With Big Jim nowhere to be seen, Brian's seat staying under his bum, and Oliver grooving with Evelyn on the dance floor as Brian needle-dropped from scar track to reggae funk. Apart from the usual blokey banter and argy-bargy from the local lads letting off steam, by all accounts, the night was uneventful. In fact, the only fracas which preceded the murder was an unrecorded bit of verbal abuse between one group of local teddy boys, all of whom were white. For whatever reason, a labourer called Peter Richardson Smith took umbrage with five local lads stood by the brick stairs. They were Johnny Howard, 
Victor Lazenby, Terry Marshall, Terry Kelly, Johnny's younger brother David, and Caroline Fisher, mother to Johnny's four-month-old baby daughter. But as fast as it flared up, the fury fizzled out. And shortly afterwards, the lads left. It was just a regular night. By 2am, with the hijinks over and everyone dancing, the nine-inch knife that Brian had stashed by his decks, ready to grab should Big Jim come cruising for a bruising, it seemed pretty pointless. But the night was about to turn bad. And that knife would change two lives forever. Moments later, Oliver burst down the brick stairs, shouting, Brian, they're here! And having barged past the bulk of Eddie the Bouncer, he hastily dashed into the bombed-out mess of Wardour Mews. His swift exit, followed by a series of deafening thuds, smashed glass and muffled screams. Eager to eavesdrop on the ensuing melee, the club's patrons surged forward, causing a bottleneck of sweaty bodies on the stairs. And being keen to keep the chaos outside, Eddie bolted the door shut. Outside, a volley of hurled house bricks and broken beer bottles bounced off the steel-reinforced door, as a brutal cacophony of yells and screams echoed. As inside, Brian shouted, Let me out! Oliver's out there! Fearful of the unimaginable horror his best friend was facing, as the missiles rained down. But the intended target was neither Oliver nor Brian. Seeing a snarling gang of angry white youths, armed with bricks and bottles, Oliver thought these were Big Jim's boys sent to bust Brian up. But huddled by the door, on the floor, he saw the bloody mess of Peter Richardson Smith, the labourer who'd had a brief verbal outburst with the local lads just moments before. And as Oliver had exited the club, he'd accidentally been caught in the crossfire. Of course, Brian didn't see any of this. As the hail of homemade missiles died down, and the fiery Jamaican forced his way out of the limbo club into the derelict bombsite of Wardour Mews. He didn't see Peter Richardson-Smith. He didn't see anything. All he saw was Oliver, his friend, his brother and his family, slumped in a sea of scattered debris, as pouring from his head was a steady stream of blood. Furiously, Brian demanded, Who did this? And with a groggy, trembling hand, Oliver said, Those white boys! And pointed to a group of snarling yobs, dashing up the dark and brooding archway and out into Darbley Street. Seeing red as his seething blood boiled, as Brian charged a Wardour Muse, 
hurling a volley of abuse and bottles. As he dashed into the bright lights of Darbley Street, he very quickly realised his mistake. As being stood smack bang in the middle of the street, alone and exposed, Brian was surrounded by those 14 white men, all armed, drunk and angry, as they slowly circled him, most of whom had been in the club that night, one of whom was 25-year-old local teddy boy, Johnny Howard. As far as we know, neither Brian nor Johnny had ever met, talked or fought before. They were just two total strangers who'd come face to face. One was black, one was white, but both were hot-tempered. Still steaming, having seen his best friend battered with bricks, fearing for the safety of his wife-to-be, Jackie, and believing that Big Jim had sent these angry white yobs to kill him. Combined with a lethal mix of this being a racially volatile period in 1960s London, Brian being a Jamaican Rasta, Johnny being a British teddy boy, and Jackie being Brian's white girlfriend, add into the mix alcohol and aggression. That is all the moment took. Being terrified, tiny and outnumbered, Brian pulled from his blue corduroy jacket the oversized knife that he'd hidden by the hi-fi should Big Jim return. Although a threatening piece, now the realisation of Oliver's words hit home. He was right. With Brian being short, crippled and not a born fighter, he had no idea how to use the knife. And looking like a frightened zebra about to be pounced on by a wild pack of hungry hyenas. Being desperate to escape, Brian began swinging and slashing indiscriminately with the sharp nine-inch piece of steel. Most of which missed. Until one of them hit. Johnny Howard was stabbed just below his right nipple, the sharp blade piercing his crisp white shirt and khaki cardigan, sinking four inches long and three inches deep into his chest, skewering his left lung, severing his aorta and splitting his main artery. Johnny didn't stand a chance. As Brian and Jackie fled, having dived into a taxi on nearby Wardour Street, they didn't see the horror unfolding behind them. As with steady spurts of hot red blood squirting from his severed heart, Johnny staggered towards his friend's car. But having stumbled barely 50 feet, he suddenly stopped. And just shy of Berwick Street, he said... I've had it, and died in the street. 
He was 25 years old and left behind a four-month-old baby daughter. Brian was arrested in his first-floor flat at Number 9 Elm Park in Brixton just a few hours later as he lay asleep with his girlfriend Jackie. Sitting on the bed, dressed in nothing but a pair of pants and a white vest, Brian professed his innocence, knowing his friends would back him up. With the trial being held at the Old Bailey on the 13th of October 1964, less than six weeks later, with much of the eyewitness testimonies either being conflicted, convoluted, or statements by hardly credible witnesses who at the time of the murder were either biased, drunk, or drugged. Even with the nine-inch knife and his bloody shirt being found in his flat, Brian pleaded not guilty. But having been implicated in the crime and fearful of receiving a lengthy prison sentence, one person colluded with the police, became the star witness for the prosecution and testified that Brian alone was the murderer. It was his best friend, Oliver. At his trial, an exasperated Brian stated, What a friend. He gets up in the box and says he saw me do it. When I get out, I'm never going to help anyone ever again. A few months later, just as he was starting a life term in prison, Jackie dumped him. Brian Alexander Robinson the 19-year-old Jamaican youth with a deceased father, an absent mother, and a disabled arm, who'd travelled from the sun-kissed isles of the West Indies into the English gloom and racial turbulence of the early 1960s to seek a better life, a steady job, and, he hoped, a family, spent the next 15 years of his life trapped in a cold grey cell in Brixton Prison with no sunlight, no music, no love, and no chance of acquittal or an early release. And as a black man in 1960s Britain, who went to rescue his friend, who was set upon by an angry mob of white men and who feared for his life, Brian appealed his life sentence on the 24th of May, 1965 reasonably stating that he was threatened, provoked, and rightfully, he pleaded self-defense. His appeal was denied. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Stay tuned to Extra Mile after the break, a big thank you goes out to my new Patreon supporters who get exclusive access to lots of secret and often rather sexy Murder Mile stuff, as well as a personal thank you from me. They are Lara Ingbo's daughter, JJ, Stevie P, Mark Robotham, The Mysterious One, and my lovely Eva. 
Murdermar was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult with No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello? 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 Welcome, listeners. Welcome to Extra Mile. Uh, if you're new, this is Extra Mile, this is the unscripted bit, uh, unscripted, uh, lots of mistakes, no music, no, no sound effects, none of that, this is all just me talking to you about the case that we've just discussed, uh, there's some other stuff thrown in there as well, but it's, it's not edited, uh, lots of stuff that would normally get taken out, but me, no, in this section, the first bit is very, very scripted, it takes about... 60 hours a week to create all that to do all the sounds and it's very you know i spend hours going through every single sound to make it perfect this bit this is as it is entirely unedited uh so episode two i thought i'd give you something different from last time last time was obviously uh uh, uh the Tratset family about a mentally unwell man uh, who murdered his family this time i thought i'd go for something a little bit different uh this was more the reason why I like this story is it is kind of a um do you know it could happen to any of us this is not he's not a murderer he's not uh, a gangland killer he's not a drug dealer he's not do you know he's not he's not a bad person at all he's just he's just a young lad who's just looking for someone to love he hasn't had a lot of love in his life and he's he's not bad he's just doing his thing and he's he's trying to survive in kind of a a difficult situation in a difficult era as well and he made a small mistake actually by picking up by buying that knife he really shouldn't have bought the knife at all but he did and that's what i love about this story is it's it, it could happen to anyone it really could he made a stupid mistake he caused a death. He ended up in prison. Where he is now, we really don't know. Um, he would have been released from prison in 1981. He would have served. It would have been 15 years before he served. Uh, before he got parole. Um, but I can't find a death certificate for him. Um, 
I don't know whether he left and went back to Jamaica. He would have been a British citizen. He would have been nationalised. And whether he stayed here, I don't know. So, uh, so he was born in 44. So what would he be now? He'd be, what, 70s? Hang on, no. No, he'd probably be mid-70s, yeah. So, yeah, probably still around. Um, so, um, I thought that was quite a topical story, uh, especially with everything that's going on in Britain at the moment with the um, the Windrush generation. Um, if you're not British and you probably haven't heard of this story, uh, obviously, as I mentioned at the start, there were loads of West Indian people who were brought over here after World War Two. We had a real shortage of people. So many people had been mur murdered by the bombings uh, or killed in war. So we needed a lot of people to help rebuild the country. Uh, the government at the time said, oh, well, you know, we've got all these people who served for us in the West Indies. Let's bring them over here as workers. And it was like, oh, fantastic. They're going to come over here and you know help help us all. But if you look at the press reports... All this great footage of all these West Indian people coming over into Britain to help us. But very quickly that turned. It's like, firstly, they weren't given a lot of help. There's a lot of footage of uh, a lot of the West Indian people coming off the boat at Tilbury. And then they had to spend the first part of their stay in Britain inside an, an old air raid shelter, basically in Clapham South, in the, the underground. There was no light, there was no air, they were given really shitty food, they had very little... And then after that, they were just treated really badly. The West Indian people were not treated as the heroes coming over here to help us. Um, they basically, they were treated by everyone, including, not just by the British people, but also by other immigrants who'd already been here, who, as I said, had got adopted a we-were-here-first attitude, which, let's be honest, that happens a lot. Uh, that people, are, even in our country, like I, I, you know, I'm sure my history goes back to I mean we've traced it back to about the 6th century or something like that in Britain but I can't say that I'm 100% British do you know there's probably some Saxon in there uh, there's probably a big chunk of African we all come from Africa really let's be honest don't we so we're all immigrants but obviously we all forget that don't we so um but what's happening at the moment in Britain is that uh, a lot of West Indians who came over in the 1940s 1950s they had become uh, British citizens, many um, didn't buy get passports because you know if you're not going to go overseas, you really don't need one. Uh, and it's got to the point, unfortunately, um, that the, the government has turned around and said, "Okay, we're rescinding your your UK status." And it's like, but hang on, we're British citizens. It's like, well, well, technically you're not. So the the, the real shit pile going on at the moment with the British government just really oh being arseholes and obviously this story has been trumped by uh, Donald Trump and his, his uh, Mexican baby prison uh, which hasn't helped at all so that's that's probably why if you're not in Britain you probably haven't heard of this story um, but this story interestingly so how did I discover it um, it was gut instinct weirdly now I've mentioned this on social media before uh, I'm not psychic in any way i don't believe in any of that kind of twaddle um i'm a real fact-based person but every sunday on my walk i do a uh if you've been on my walk you know i do a story uh about a guy who murdered his wife and his family um they they basically ran a tobacconist it's on wardour street and you'll recognize it because it's a building with like a skull on top of it with a dagger sticking out the top um 
And every time I stand there, I always look at Wardour Mews and I always think, hmm, something, you know, you get a feeling, I get a weird feeling that something bad has happened there. And I don't believe in this kind of stuff. It's just, you know, it's just a gut reaction. So I started doing research. I started typing, I started uh, going to the National Archives and looking for murders in Darbley Street. And then I checked, and then I checked Wardour Mews and that's when it popped up. I thought it was too small for to find murders in there but there was it was a murder so it was this one uh and yeah it was just interesting to find it uh but every time i stopped there i always got a weird feeling um that this that murder had gone on started reading it uh really enjoyed it as a murder case Uh, obviously it's not about serial killers or demented people this is what i like it's a personal story about real people pushed to the edge brian's not a killer at all But a black man surrounded by 14 white men, all angry, all drunk, all with broken bottles. You know, what would you do? What would you do if you were surrounded by lots of angry people who hated you? And, you know, if you got a knife on you, would you use it? Probably. By the look of it, what he was saying is he was waving it around. Um... There's another part to the story as well that I didn't put in there. This this story is very convoluted, so I've had to write it as Brian's story. Because um, that's the only way to try and tell it in a way that makes sense. But there were pieces where Brian said he was hit with a brick and he was slightly dizzy. This was when he went out of the club and he found Oliver. Um, and uh, he was dizzy and he had blood in his eyes. But although there was a slight graze on his head, the doctor said it wasn't enough to bleed. So I haven't really put that part of the story in, but Brian had said that he was slashing away with the knife because he couldn't see. Do you know, it was it was dark outside, he'd got blood in his eyes. Whether that really happened, I don't know. It's a real nightmare to try and work out what really happened that night. Um, as I said in the story, there's lots of conflicting reports and I've I've gone through all of the reports and all of them conflict. In fact, some people have told multiple, given multiple statements, and all of those reports conflict. Uh, so there was. It's it's hard to work out exactly what happened. Um, one of the things that was hard at the start originally was to find the bloody limbo club. This is one of the things that again on the police report, uh, they wrote, we went to Wardour Mews, we went to the limbo club. Again, no one puts down the the number and it's really frustrating. And I don't know why such a simple thing is so hard to put on a report. It's like if I was going to say someone was murdered, say say at your house, and you go, it's it's 26 Acacia Road. I wouldn't just write murder at Acacia Road. I'd write 26 Acacia Road because that's the murder location, not the road itself. Unless it was outside a specific building, then you'd say it's outside number 15 Acacia Road. But here on none of the reports did they write down where the limbo club was. Uh, so, um, I was digging through the, the history of the Limbo Club. I had to go through a lot of, uh, kind of, it was really in a history of reggae, history of reggae in the nine, in the 1960s, uh, where it was mentioned, um, uh, that it was now, uh, that it was at 11B and then I looked, I went to 11B and then I found out it was DM Buttons. Which is really interesting, and actually on the DM Buttons website, they do they have some little pictures on there of the Limbo Club in the late 1960s, early 1970s. 
because it, it was a club before that. It was always owned by Italians. Hence the awful pitch, picture of a Tuscan skyline in there that they never moved. The Jamaicans, when they took it over, they never thought, let's put in a nice picture of Jamaica. They were just like, yeah, let's stick with Tuscany. Yeah, of course. Why not? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, so DM Buttons is still there today. Still the original building. Even though most of it, most of the area was bombed during, uh, by a huge bomb uh, in 1941, I believe it was. Blasted out the eastern end of it. The western end of it is still original. And it's still today, if you go, we walk down there, it's tight, it's a wardrobe. It's got the, the old kind of little uh, Victorian lights, the ones that you kind of always picture like on uh old tv series and things like that so that's all still there so it all looks it all looks original so but i've posted a video of this on my social media so you can have a look at that and see what it actually looks like at the moment um but as i said this is a story of so many sides it really is so i've told brian's story um but see this is it's it's hard to define everything so because everyone had their own perspectives that night so i could have done this from john howard's story so johnny howard the uh the guy who was stabbed i thought about that doing that at the start i really did i really thought to myself well he's the victim and you know i love writing the stories about victims rather than the killers i thought let's sit down and write johnny howard's story but the problem is as i went through all of the stories and statements from his friends who were there that night and his girlfriend, who gave, she gave multiple statements, and each of them changed wildly each time. And the problem is, even, even people who were there, like some of the people who were there, they it's hard. It was hard to write their story because when you read their statements, it was really was a capsule of the racial tensions at the time. So they would say, "My mate Terry did this. My mate Terry did that." And then, I apologise for my language here, but this is basically what it said. Then the statement would say, then this nigger did this, then that coon did that. And it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't write their story. If I was, I, I probably could if I was going to write a story when I, where I'd go, there was these ignorant fuckwits who are just racist and they're just ignorant and I was just like I I could have wrote that one but I just didn't want to and but when I started reading Brian's story that kind of got me because it's it's like you know a killer by mistake unwilling um his mum left him his dad died he had a disabled arm came to Britain to make a nice life for himself it didn't go as planned uh, and he struggled through uh, adversity. And, I, you know, that made me want to side with his story more. So if you were to go through, you could go through this case again and write it in write it in a variety of different ways because all of the statements conflict. In some of the statements, like I've written it, that uh, Oliver said, Brian, they're here, and then he came upstairs and there were white boys throwing bottles and bricks at Oliver and Peter Richardson-Smith. But there are other statements that say when Peter Richardson Smith went upstairs first and when he got attacked, there were black boys throwing bottles and bricks. Uh, hang on, what way am I going with this? Sorry, there was... Um, so Peter Richardson Smith went upstairs outside the limbo club and there were black boys throwing bottles at him and then they ran off. And then Brian came out and saw 
some white boys you know it all got confusing about who was attacking who there was like one lot of black boys one lot of white boys another lot of black boys it all got mixed people running in different areas so every every single different statement was all over the shop even trying to explain it to you now is a nightmare um because some people just didn't see other people you know as i was going through the list i was all the statements i was like oh okay so brian was hit first and then it was like hang on what's this no brian wasn't hit first peter was hit first so it was kind of it was so originally i thought it was black black men throwing bottles at a white man which is peter and then oliver trying to break it up but it wasn't what it seemed to be was white boys throwing bottles at a white man and a black man accidentally got involved so what started as a kind of a racial tension story actually was some kind of discuss some kind of argument between peter and johnny howard inside the club of which we have no idea what they said because no one relayed back what it was in any of the statements at all and then for some reason they had an argument and it fell into a fight and then brian got involved sorry oliver got involved and therefore brian got involved it's really confusing that's why i've tried to write this as clearly as possible um but yeah, and I, I'm just, so I'm more inclined to b- believe Brian's story because um, yeah, a lot of the a lot of the white people's statements quite racist, quite racist. Um, so uh, yeah, we still uh, have no idea what was the argument between Peter Richardson and Johnny, um, and why. See that's that's the other thing that's difficult as well. After it's clear why Brian goes after the white boys because he sees his his friend his his brother um, attacked, hit with a bottle, and he's he dashes up Wardour Street to Darblay Street to chase them. Now he now Brian actually says that because um, he couldn't get back into the club because Eddie had locked the door, he was going out that way to get to get a phone to call the police. Although a lot of statements say that by the point he was already running out that way with a knife in his hand. Uh, some people say he had. Some people say he hadn't got a knife in his hand. Some people say he's... Uh, Johnny's girlfriend said that Brian had stabbed Johnny with a, a broken bottle. But the the autopsy entirely went against that. And it's a really confusing story because everyone says that people are wearing different coloured clothes. Which is why I reference at the start what colour clothes people are wearing. Because throughout people are going someone's wearing red this person's wearing white this person's wearing blue and it's really confusing um so um there was a lot of racial tension in there um why the teddy boys and uh johnny howard when they circled brian why it all kicked off then whether it was a racist thing whether brian had said something we don't know whether johnny had said something we don't know uh, whether they'd had a bit of a to-do in the club pri- previously, we don't know that either. It's said that they didn't, but maybe they did. So there's a lot of gaps in this story. And this is what made the case really difficult for the police, is that when you've got 20 to 30 different people all giving different stories, who are you going to believe? Basically, they just had to go with what they knew, which was that they had the knife, uh, it had some fingerprints on it, it had blood on it, it had, they found a shirt... 
um, they had their star witness. Um, so they had to charge him that way. But the, the, there was always a lot of tension in the Limbo Club because this was just like the Shim Sham Club, which is also on Wardour Street uh, back in the 30s. The, the Limbo Club was a place where black men could come and listen to black music but dance with white women. And in the 1960s, this was a really frowned upon thing by society. But kind of, you know, if you were... If you're a racist, you would go searching for that kind of thing to, to to beat people up, and that's that's why you get a lot of teddy boys. I'm not saying that all teddy boys were like that, but these, in this case, these these were teddy boys. Uh, this is why you would see them uh, go into clubs like that because they wanted to get drunk and they wanted to cause trouble. Uh, and there's always always had been a lot of uh, bad bad blood in the club, lots of racial tensions. So. Um, yeah, what happened there is a real nightmare. It's 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 absolutely difficult to uh, confirm what happened. Okay, oh, uh, Big Jim. Uh, so that's probably where he thought the story was going, that Big Jim would turn up and uh, there would be a fight between Big Jim and Brian. Um, I thought that as well. Going through all the records, I thought that Big Jim, having placed his foot on Brian's chair and then, you know, there was the fight and... Big Jim pulls out his flick knife but then gets stopped by Eddie. I thought that's where the story would go. But Big Jim doesn't come back. And I've gone through all of the witness statements. uh, And it's only Brian who mentions Big Jim. Who apparently, his real name is Charles. God, this story is confusing. There's so many people who have... Like Oliver. Oliver's real name is Leon. But they call him Oliver. Bloody hell. Why can't people just have proper nicknames like... Someone called James is called Jim, as opposed to someone called Charles is called Big Jim. Ugh. Anyway, uh, so yeah, uh, Big Jim only appears in Brian's statement. He doesn't appear in any other statement. No one else can clarify that this happened. And for some reason, even on the witness statement with uh, Eddie Cason, the door, the uh, doorman, the police didn't query whether this thing had happened with Big Jim the night before. It's not on any of his witness statements. Which I would have thought that's the, one of the first things you do is check that this story was real. So it's only Brian who mentions Big Jim. Uh, so whether this actually happened or not, or whether this was a fabrication added to the story, we really don't know. We don't know at all. Uh, what happened to Brian after he was uh, sent to prison for 15 years? Well, he was given a life sentence, which is 15 years without parole. Uh, If he managed to get parole, he would have been out in uh, 1979. Uh, But where he is now, we really don't know. Could be anywhere. Could be in Britain. Could be in Jamaica. Uh, Could still be in prison. Don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe he only served a couple of years. But there's, I can't find any record of him at all. Which is not to say he's a great mystery. Uh, It's just to say that just the details aren't there. Um, a lot of the details of people still living are really hard to find. If people are dead and they've been dead for years, it's great. But if people are still living, it's an absolute nightmare to track down. Um, so the Limbo Club um, was always a dodgy club. Always had been. Uh, I managed to get some extra details from... Uh, thanks to Septic Peg. Uh, I was having a peruse through your website. I hope you don't mind. I know you sent me the link, so I always have a look through it. And you've got some good details on the Limbo Club there. Uh, 
So uh, 1977, about 13 years after that, uh, a guy called Harold Bidney um, ran the Limbo Club. And he was convicted uh, of being a paedophile. Uh, who else? David Gordon uh, was around the same time was doorman of the Limbo Club, charged with stabbing John Joseph Wall, uh, who was a doctor's receptionist. I'm going to look into that because if we can have another club, another murder in the Limbo Club, that'd be interesting for season three. Um, and also uh, 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 Stephen John Hartford uh, was charged with providing uh, Purple Hearts, obviously. Um, hallucinogenic drugs uh, in the 1960s so this was 1965 this was the the year after the murder so uh it had all moved on from that point um now there were other things in the story that i haven't added in um there was a couple of statements about oliver being a pimp so i said that he had his girlfriend evelyn um there is discussions in there that the limbo club not only was it just a nightclub for kind of uh dancing and getting a bit stoned and you know black men dancing with white women but there is discussions in the witness statements which i can't corroborate at all that um oliver was a pimp and that he used to pimp out a lot of white women to black men um now, one of these women, uh, in her statement, it was actually from Evelyn, his his latest girlfriend. I've put down girlfriend, but whether they were kind of seeing each other, we're not too too sure. But it looked as if he was trying to pimp her out. So Oliver has a bit of a bit of a darker history. So you can probably understand why, for him, he would probably want to collude with the police and say, "This is what happened. Aren't I being good?" Because then they can probably let him off with other crimes that he'd committed such as the police probably turned around and said we're going to charge you with manslaughter and racketeering and prostitution and he could turn around and go look if i tell you who committed the murder i give you all the details can you let me off with less a lesser offense than prostitution so uh that could have happened i'm not actually too sure but um that's the details that seem to be in there oh so I hope you enjoyed that. That was uh, that Brian Alexander Robinson. Uh, next week will be an entirely different story. I'm, I'm still, uh, I, I'm not announcing what they are in advance because I'm kind of working it out as I go along. Uh, I'm trying to find different stories. Um, coot update, if you want coot update. Um, new family of coots outside. The coots are growing up very nicely. Um, another set of coots. Uh, who have already had kids, I think are starting on their next batch now, so they've set up a new nest. I know, they've already had five, and now they want more. What the hell are they about? Don't they want to have a life? <laughs> um, so, yeah, but it's relatively quiet here. Um, I'm uh, heading north on the canal, heading up towards uh, Sawbridgeworth. Uh, I'm at a place that's it's it's all right it's nice and quiet there's a couple of trucks outside there's one outside today with a beep 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 which was really annoying um little aircraft tend to use the canal to find their way into london so every so often i have to stop recording because a little crappy aircraft will fly past um but apart from that um it's all right here it's not too bad uh update at the moment i've been on a, a diet for the last couple of weeks because i've been getting quite fat quite round quite portly 
when I sit on the bed, I feel like a, uh, I feel like a panda. <laughs> so um, about three or four weeks ago, I popped myself on a, uh, a diet, proper diet, not one of these crappy diets that like Jennifer Aniston says, oh, you've got to go on my diet and you can eat just chicken and it makes your breath stink like a mortuary. Um, I don't think there's any, I don't think it's good to kind of look nice, but stink. I think it's best to have the best of both worlds. And also, you shouldn't just eat protein. You should have a balanced diet. So I've been um, changing my diet. I've cut out all of the things that we know we're not meant to eat, like bread, dairy, uh, and uh, refined sugar, things like that. So fruit for breakfast, uh, vegetables for lunch, and then um, fish, rice, and vegetables in the evening. And then I, I give myself a nice, in the evening, I pop on a podcast, not true tr- true crime, I've kind of gone off true crime. Uh, and I pop on a nice podcast, some storytelling, and I go off on a nice two-hour walk. And it's, yeah, I've really lost a lot of bulk. There's a lot of bulk and a lot of wibble-wobble. Before, when I walked, there would be wibbly-wobbly. But now, there's very little wibbly-wobbly. So I'm slowly letting... On Sundays, I don't get me wrong, I do have fun on Sundays. Sundays is kind of beers and some ice cream and some chocolate and a yeah. Last weekend, oh dear, I decided to make some cheese and ham sandwiches because even though I'm a vegetarian, my body said you need you need this. And I have a thing called chromium deficiency. So my body can't regulate minerals properly. So when I get weak, my body goes, it tells me what I need to eat. It forces it into my head and I can't concentrate. And sometimes it goes marzipan and there's nothing i can do about it i can't work i can't concentrate i have to go and get some marzipan or sometimes it's ham and cheese tagliatelle uh last week because i because i had hadn't had any wheat i hadn't had any meat hadn't had any uh cheese i needed cheese and ham sandwiches so i made some cheese and ham sandwiches i made six which were far too many and then I spent the whole night lying in bed grumbling because I couldn't move. I was hurting, hurting from eating too much food because my body's not used to eating big meals anymore. Uh, but it's working. It's working. I'm, 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 losing, I'm shifting bulk, which is good. So um, normally in this section, what I, what I would do is do uh, listeners questions. And I put some in last week. That was great. Uh, obviously, you haven't heard the new episodes yet. Um, uh, and at the end of that, I do the listeners' questions, and I asked you for any questions as, as at all. Obviously, that episode hasn't gone out yet as I record this. But if you do have any, I got burps again. Oh dear! If you do have questions, uh, message me. Just send them in. Uh, any questions about any episode about how Murder Mile is made, uh, how it's researched? Any you can dive into any episode and ask me any question. Uh, as a listener very recently I do apologise, I've forgotten who you were, but on my uh, Murder Mile True Crime Podcast discussion group asked a very fantastic question uh, and said the good thing is it's on my phone so I could probably check it on my phone now, I won't do that it was um, Chetty said, with the Blackout Ripper story, she's listening to the Blackout Ripper story and um how when he so it's Dois June, so it's technically his last victim. Uh oh here we go. Okay, it was Kim Nixon. 
Fantastic, Kim. Okay, hi everyone. I have a question about the Blackout Ripper. See, it makes more sense if I read it. After leaving Greta Haywood and Kathleen Mulcahy, he went round the corner to meet Doris Juney. But how did that meeting happen? Did they just meet in the street by chance? Or was Doris looking for business, inverted commas? Or did he see her by going by her house and follow her? Which is a fantastic question. Thanks for that, Kim. Um, That's one of those questions that's interesting because we never saw the Blackout Ripper meet any of his victims. It's because he was in a, a military uniform, he just blended in. If he was if he was a man who was a a clown, let's say, let's say he worked for the circus, you'd spot a clown going through Soho. But because he was in an RAF uniform and most men were in military uniforms, he blended in. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of men in the West End all dressed identical. And don't forget the fashion was very similar, so the haircuts would be the same, they'd be about the same height. You wouldn't have an airman who was fat or had a walking stick or, you know, they were all factory built, essentially. They're all of a type. So we never saw the Blackout Ripper meeting any of his victims at all. We had details of seeing him in various places by different prostitutes who'd seen him, but that is it. So, um, so... On that final night, the Blackout Ripper was in Piccadilly. Uh, he attempted to strangle Greta Hayward. He failed. He dropped his gas mask. He ran away. He picked up Catherine Mulcahy on Regent Street and then got in a cab with her to go to... See, it's gone out of my head already. Uh, a street by Sussex Gardens where Doris Junet lived. Uh, he attempted to... Ca- attack Greta Hayward again that failed he escaped he walked in in the direction of Sussex Gardens and that's where we that's where it ends that's where we can't see where the Blackout Ripper went and also because Doris Junet was in Piccadilly going to meet the captain inverted commas of which we know nothing about and the date didn't seem to happen because she ended up back home within an hour We've no idea how she got from Piccadilly back home. She may have got a taxi. She may have walked. Uh, We have no idea how the two of them met. We would love to know. But Deutsche Unie is dead. And the Black Eyed Ripper is also dead as well. So uh, fantastic question. But unfortunately one of those that we just can't give an answer to. And hence in the Black Eyed Ripper episode. I deliberately leave that blank. There's no meeting. There's no point where... We kind of see them come together. Um, But that's the problem with um, murder history. Sometimes, as with the Brian Alexander Robinson episode, sometimes there's not a lot of information. Sometimes the information you have is incorrect. Um, So you have to pity sometimes the police in their job. When people go, oh, I don't see why the police couldn't, you know, find out who the murderer was. It's clear. In hindsight, it's clear. If I look at, like, the Brian Alexander Robinson story now yeah of course i know who the murderer is i know that brian murdered johnny uh, accidentally with a knife and i know what wh- where the knife was but the police they've got 20 to 30 different people giving different witness statements where oh actually in the story when they went back to brian's house i cut this out for time because it, it slowed it down but brian had actually washed it this is something that's confusing. So uh, it's said that he, Brian stabbed Johnny, 
He then went back into the club, which doesn't make sense. He took off his bloodied shirt, which had Johnny's bloody on it, blood on it, uh, with the knife. He top, got the knife, he wrapped the knife in his shirt, put it inside his jacket. Then he got into a cab and then he drove home. And then he went into his front garden, which is technically not his front garden because he's on the first floor. So it'd be the grand, person, person on the ground floor, their garden. And he he washed the knife and then he buried it in the back garden. And then when the police turned up, he denied all knowledge of uh, the murder. And then one a very astute policeman found a bit of kind of, um, you know, soil that had been, uh, what's the word? Not ruffled. It's, uh, 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 do you know, soil. Soil, soil, what am I saying? Soil, soil, soil. See, I, I could edit this in, I can't remember. I can't do that, can I? Uh, soil, soil, that looked like it had been disturbed. Thank you, Michael, that's the word I wanted. There was some disturbed soil. He dug it up, and about a couple of inches down, he found the knife. And they walked in, and the police inspector said to Johnny, uh, we're, we're questioning you in relation to the murder of a white man. He said those words, a white man. Uh, in Darblay Street last night, of which Brian said, I know nothing about that. And then he said, um, he showed him the knife and he said, is this your knife? And he said, uh, no, I have no idea whose knife that is. He denied that he'd buried it. Although later on he retracted his statement and admitted that um, it was his knife. He did put it there. Um, but it just it just slows down the story. Uh, I couldn't. I couldn't think of a way of telling it properly without thinking. Mm, why are we doing this? Do you know? Sometimes, sometimes, some scenes in a story can really slow the story down. So I, I decided not to do that with this one. Cool. Okay. So um, that was the murder of Brian Alexander Robinson. Hope you enjoyed that. Uh, more to come. More murders. Um, these are all going nicely. Uh, I think I'm going to aim for about 20, 24-ish. Uh, if, of course, if, if you know of any in the West End, because obviously I've expanded slightly. I've got, uh, I've got my Soho area. I've got my Paddington area. I've got my uh, King's Cross Euston area. So all interestingly... Because the Blackout Ripper moved, I've kind of picked some of those areas as well. And I've picked uh, uh, Euston and King's Cross because I will be going back to... Remember the Dutch Lair story? That's part of a thing called the Soho Strangler. So I'll probably be doing a multi-part series about the Soho Strangler. Hopefully, if I can get more information on that. But that is based in Euston and King's Cross. But a lot of murders seem to happen around train stations. It seems to be a very transient area. Soho is a transient area. People tend not to live there for very long. Uh, it tends to be transient. It tends to be people who are looking for prostitution and drugs. Hence, there's a lot of prostitution stories. But also, it's the same with Paddington and Euston and King's Cross. So that's why I've picked those areas as well. But if you have any stories that you know of that happened in those areas, get in touch. I'm happy to look at them. I'm happy to dive in. Uh, they don't need to be uh, murderous stuff. It can be manslaughter. It can just just something that's interesting. Things that just are intriguing. I find more interesting than. I'm not really that bothered about stories to do with people getting their heads cut off and uh, bodies boiled in acid. It's like it's fine, but it's kind of like 
it's easy to tell a story about someone about all these grisly details, whereas it's harder to tell a story that's interesting about a person's life, about how they ended up in that situation. How many times have you listened to stories about Ted Bundy and not heard anything about the victims, not heard anything about their life? All you hear about is Ted Bundy met this person on this date and they ended up in this barrel or head in a fridge. I think it's better to tell a personal story, real story, life story. That's what we're here for in life. It's a life story. It's not. Can you imagine if your life was summed up in just a couple of words? Or your life was summed up by your death. How depressing would that be? It's like, here is Michael. He was hit by a bus. His head was squashed under the front left wheel. Hmm. I don't think I'd like that. I think I'd like people to remember me as podcaster, writer, podcaster, true crime podcaster. Maybe some people might remember me for my awful plays I wrote years ago that no one came to see. Um, But you'd want to be remembered for something better than just being a collection of injuries. Hmm. Anyway, that was episode two of season two of Murder Mile. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, New episode next week. And I'm going to sign off now. Of course, I always forget how to sign off. I can't remember. Please do if you can if you can work out how to get me to sign off properly. A catchphrase or something like that. I don't know because I've no idea. Look, I'm waffling now. Um, I'm going to sign off. So uh, after three, we'll blow each other a kiss. Okay. (laughs) Right. Or or you can just wave or you can just wave. Uh, So after three, one, two, three. Bye. Wave. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. 
There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.